Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Hope you're doing great today because it's a great day to be alive, even if it is 85 degrees at 9.17 a.m. here above the garage. I have to turn the AC off because it makes too much noise while I'm recording, so this introduction might be a little shorter than last week's. Hey, I've got a great topic for you today. You know what it is? Are you ready for it? You ready? It's frugality. No, wait. No, 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 no. Don't turn this off. Don't fast forward. Don't go listen to something else. This is actually a very interesting topic because it could mean so many different things. And to help us analyze what it means, I have a great guest. His name is Emrys Westicott. He's a professor of philosophy at Alfred University. I'll read his whole resume in a second. In his book, The Wisdom of Frugality is the center point of our conversation today. It's actually very interesting to come at this in a lot of different ways because the first thing you have to ask yourself is, what does frugality mean? What does it mean to be frugal? Does it mean that you spend less than you could spend? Well, Bill Gates lives in a 60,000 square foot house, but he could live in a 120,000 square foot house or a spaceship if he wanted to. Is he frugal? You could say that. Does being frugal mean you're cheap? I've been accused of being cheap in some parts of my life. And yet I've also been known to spend hours researching eight foot Yeti statues for my front yard. That purchase would not indicate that I am necessarily a frugal person. And I just can't wait the day I get to see my neighbors walk by my front yard and look and go, is that, is that Bigfoot coming out of their flower garden? Bigfoot and azaleas. That's quite a match. Does being frugal mean that you're taking the advice of Paul Sullivan from the New York times who about a month or so ago on this very show talked about his Chateau Margaux rule meaning don't start drinking the Chateau Margaux because our tastes adjust upward very quickly, but they're very difficult to rein in. Once you've tasted the Chateau Margaux, that decoy Cabernet is not going to have the same punch it used to. It's just not. Can frugality make you happier? I believe it can. Remember the movie Wall Street? There was that guy, Lou Mannheim, the character. Hal Holbrook played him, and he was sort of like the wise. He's some character archetype. I can't remember what it was. Where's Bill Moyer when you need him? He's the, like the wise counsel that warns Bud of the imminent danger. And he looks at him in one scene and says, the main thing about money, Bud, is it makes you do things you don't want to do. And therein lies the wisdom of frugality. Therein lies, hey, if you are in control of what money is supposed to do for you in your life, then you don't have to break the law. You don't have to deal with Gordon Geckos out there. It's your appetites when you want to date Daryl Hall. Not Daryl Hall. What's her name? Daryl Hannah. Daryl Hall was the guy from Hall & Oates. Anyway, it's when your appetites get out of control that you live a life subservient to money and not the other way around. And that's how frugality can make you happier. Anyway, we're going to jump into it. It's a fun conversation. Is it really a fun conversation, Paul? Hell yes, it is, friends, because this is crazy money. That's what we do here. Let me tell you a little bit about Emrys. Emrys Westicott is the author of The Wisdom of Frugality and Professor of Philosophy at Alfred University. In addition to courses on ethics, happiness, and logic, Emrys teaches, check this out, Emrys teaches an honors course called Tight Watery, or the Good Life on a Dollar a Day, in which students hunt for bargains at yard sales, cut each other's hair. I think some of us can uh, relate to that after the last 120 days. And they cook a banquet composed of meals that cost about a dollar each to prepare. One student's recipe was called Apple Crisp and How to Pilfer Your Ingredients from the Dining Hall. 
which might suggest that she didn't get an A plus in Emrys's ethics class. The Daily Beast named Tightwatery one of America's hottest college courses, and CNN included it on its list of 22 fascinating and bizarre college classes. In today's episode, Emrys and I discuss what Stoicism, Buddhism, the Epicureans, and Christianity can teach us about getting the most out of life by knowing what we want from our money. We touch on Thoreau and Puritanism, Transcendentalism, Neoliberalism, Quarantine the Fire Movement, and a whole bunch more. I know you will find Emerson's vast philosophical knowledge to be very, very interesting. He's got a great sense of humor, by which I mean he laughed at most of my jokes. Please enjoy this conversation with Emrys Westacott. The problem that may arise in the kind of things talking about is this. The goals you set yourself are not goals that you've truly chosen and a true expression of you. You want to stand on the Great Wall of China. But why do you want to stand on the Great Wall of China? Answer, so you can have your photograph taken and then you can show everyone that you've stood on the Great Wall of China, right? You know, do you really care? Did you study the history of China? No. Did mm. you find anything out about the building mm. of the wall or what it was all that? No. It's just that that's the kind of thing that cultured people do. They go on the pilgrimage and they bring back the souvenir. Then everyone says, ah, that is a well-traveled person. And in sense, that's what I mean by false values, where the values you've taken on aren't, this is the kind of thing one is supposed to do. And you're supposed to enjoy it. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Emrys Westacott. Welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Indeed. So let's just get right into it. True or false, Emrys, frugal people are by definition more virtuous than non-frugal people. I would say false, although there's a pretty strong philosophical tradition that associates frugality, which is usually thought of as a virtue, with other virtues. And part of that philosophical tradition, people are suspicious of the extravagance. They are suspicious of luxury. They are suspicious of excessive wealth and power. And there are good reasons for that. At the same time, poverty can fuel crime and wealth can fuel philanthropy. What other virtues are most commonly associated with frugality? Hmm. That is a good question. And I think one virtue that can be associated with frugality is, um, strangely enough, a kind of charity, a kind of um, solidarity. You know, when you think about the Depression era or something like that, that people feel that we're in the same boat and it's up to all of us to help each other in times of need. I think also frugality is associated with simple living. And simple living is very commonly associated with a certain kind of character, the character that doesn't have false values but has true values. You think, for instance, of the big deal that was made when the present Pope was elected and everyone made a big fuss of how he eschewed living in the palace that he could in Buenos Aires. Instead, he lived in a little apartment and scrambled his own eggs. And the subtext of that was, this is a person who embraces simple living and therefore has a kind of integrity as as opposed to the false values associated with wealth. Yes, I find Pope Francis to be quite refreshing, maybe not addressing the most pressing needs in the church overall, but certainly his dedication to living simply and taking care of the poor is is a nice reminder of true Christian values. Let me ask you this, because you make the point in the book that one of the challenges with discussing frugality is that it's subjective, relative, and dynamic. So how do you define it? I think that uh, frugality 
can be given more than one definition. The way that most people think of it straight away is being prudent, being careful with money, making sure that your income exceeds your expenditure. And you do that by cutting down on expenses. This is a sort of um, lifestyle associated somewhat with Ben Franklin and his kind of wisdom. Frugality, though, can be not just be a matter of living on less than one earns or of saving money, socking it away, you know, for a rainy day. I mean, frugality is also very closely associated with simple living. And that means making do with very little, not just in terms of money, but also in terms of the other things. For instance, living in a smaller house, doing without a car, choosing a bicycle instead or something like that, being somewhat self-sufficient. Instead of paying to have your oil changed, you change it yourself. You make your own furniture or you you cook your own food, you sew your own clothes or this kind of thing. So there's a slew of other qualities, like I've just mentioned, self-sufficiency and lack of dependence, which are also associated with simplicity and frugality. In the book, I often do tend to run together simplicity and frugality. And the reason for that was because when I began writing the book, the question I had in my mind was, why do philosophers tend to say that frugality is a virtue? And of course, I immediately, as a philosopher, start trying to define frugality. And I keep finding myself talking about simple living. Quite an influential book that I read at the time was Thoreau's Walden, of course. Listeners who've read Walden will know he begins with a long chapter on economy. And so the use of money or the getting by without much money is very important. And yet, it's not the only thing that Walden is all about. Walden is also about, for instance, being very close to nature. Now, being very close to nature isn't exactly frugality, but it is one of the meanings we associate with simple living, I think. Right. So I want to be close to nature. So I'm going to go buy a $2 million house in the mountains and wire it with lightning fast Wi-Fi and have a movie theater in the basement. Those aren't the same things. (laughs) No, it's one of the uh, sad aspects of our contemporary society, I think, that for many people, getting close to nature can put a strain on their means. It's easy if you're rich and you've got country houses and this kind of thing to retreat to. But if you, um, you know, you live in straightened circumstances in densely populated part of an inner city, it can be very difficult. However, having said that, having recognized the difficulty that some people can have to get close to nature, I think one of the excellent pieces of wisdom bequeathed to us by the Stoics, by people like Seneca, for instance, who was at one point in his life exiled to a remote island. He says in one of his letters, he says, no matter where you are in the world, you can enjoy nature. You can take an interest in it. You can appreciate it. And I think that is largely true. You certainly don't have to be rich to appreciate nature. But that is, um, calls into play another interesting point. Quite recently, I watched Ken Burns's documentaries on the national parks. And the whole philosophy behind the national parks is, of course, that Closeness to nature and appreciation of nature is absolutely essential to human well-being. And it's vitally important that the entire population have access to this kind of natural beauty. Yeah, there's a sense of egalitarianism, I think, that you discuss in what makes for a good society. And I want to get to that in the back half of the interview. I do want to come back to how we live today and some of the challenges we have and the opportunities we might have to use frugality as a means to live more fulfilling lives. But before we get there, I want to dive into what it means to be frugal. Are all frugal people cheap and are all cheap people frugal? Certainly, I wouldn't say that all frugal people are cheap. As I've said earlier, you can be frugal and generous 
you can live cheaply yourself and yet be very, very um, giving in terms of what you give to other people. In fact, even though obviously I am somewhat a cheerleader for frugality to some extent, I recognize that a danger of frugality, and it's a danger I've recognized in myself, and my wife will back me up on this. <laughs> the danger is that you become so keen on being frugal that you lose perspective and you can become ungenerous or you can become kind of foolish. I have a friend who I play golf with occasionally. He's perfectly well off. He doesn't need to spend so long looking for lost golf balls or trying to recover his half-broken tees, but he does. <laughs> and part of me sympathizes and part of me says, oh, come on, you don't need to do that. You, know, you can't take it with you. <laughs> well, first of all, I want to get your wife in the room, please. Have her confirm that, you know, what it's like to live with you. I interviewed my wife and she spilled all the beans on me. So uh, fair play here. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned golf because at some point in your book, you talk about people who are addicted to wealth and keep working regardless of how much money they have. I said to myself, well, you know, maybe they're not working for the money. Maybe they're working for the dopamine hit that they get with the next deal. And that's a different kind of addiction, perhaps. But I wrote down this story. We live near a golf course. And especially during quarantine, I've taken, you know, 130 walks in whatever, 110 days. And one of the things that I do as I walk along the edge of the golf course is stick my head in the bushes and pull out as many spare balls, you know, shag balls as I can. I probably have 350 in my garage right now. And as bad of a golfer as I am, I'm not going to get through all those balls anytime soon. So the question is, why do I keep doing it? And I feel like it's a little Easter egg hunt and I get a little thrill every time I find a new ball and I find out if, you know, if it's a top flight or a Titleist Pro V1X, which are the, you know, the really good ones that you want to find. The thing is that when you find a golf ball, it's a good deal. Uh -huh. um, there's nothing will sell things to all of us better than a, a good deal. So, you know, it's like there's an old joke, isn't there, about the bloke who goes to India and someone tries to sell him an elephant and he keeps saying, no, no, I don't want to buy an elephant. I, I live in a small apartment in Manhattan and he says, well, I'm selling it for $100. Elephants are valuable. He says, no, I, I can't fit it in my apartment. $50. No, no, no. $20. Okay, I'll take two. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the thing is, we're sold on the good deal, regardless of whether we actually have a use for the thing or whether we want it. So you mentioned people who can go too far with frugality, and you mentioned a few people from history. Scrooge, well, not really from history, he's from uh, literary history, I suppose. Scrooge was a perfect example. Diogenes was a bit of an oddball from ancient times. And I'll go ahead and add everybody in the fire movement who's trying to out-frugal each other as being on the potentially annoying list of frugal people. <laughs> of course, in the fire movement, many of those have made that pile, right? Mm. And... Uh, so the thing is that, again, a danger here is uh, we can fall into kind of smug complacency, can't we? If we happen to be among the fortunate people who are fairly comfortable off and are not, you know, wondering where we're going to get the next month's rent from, then we can sort of embrace all kinds of good-sounding, well-intentioned, well-meaning philosophies. And yet, you know, losing sight of the fact we have it easy. You know, I think of myself as, um, I'm not rich, but I think of myself as someone who definitely has it easy compared to the many, many people at the moment who are frantically wondering how they're going to pay the rent. Mm. You talk about some of the benefits of frugality and moderation, I guess would be another word for it, is that you say practicing restraint enhances pleasure in two ways. Number one, enhanced enjoyment when you do choose to indulge. And number two, enhanced appreciation for the mundane, which might have been ignored if you were always indulging. Right. I think 
taking that second one in particular, enhanced enjoyment of the mundane, I would hope that many of us right now are actually able to recognize that experience because so many of the more exciting, more exotic recreations are not available to us anymore. And so we're forced to, in a way, we're forced back on relishing the everyday, the humble pleasures. And relating this to the pandemic at the moment, the problem is this, that of all our humble pleasures, I think by far and away the most important one is the pleasure of friendship and of conversation and of hanging out with the people we love. Epicurus, the Greek philosopher who I'm a big fan of, he says this, he says, of of all the things necessary for human happiness, the most important by far is friendship. And I think he's basically right. And if I ask my own students, I teach at Alfred University, and if I ask my students, you know, what are your favorite activities? So always number one is hanging out with my friends. And I think that's good. I think it's sort of healthy. But of course, in a pandemic, it's hard to do, isn't it? And we hang out with our friends on Zoom. It's not quite the same. But at the same time, I think the pandemic is making us realize just how important those times are where we we spend time in meaningful conversation with people we love. Perhaps a silver lining there. Longitudinal studies like the Harvard Longitudinal Study bears out that social connections is the number one contributor to a healthy life. And there's parallels to that, meaning if you take care of yourself to truly enjoy your friendships and the healthier you are, the more golf you get to play. And what is that but hanging out with your friends? and screaming profanities at the top of your lungs. But you mentioned Epicurus, who I keep calling Epicurious for some reason, but you know, Epicureanism has different implications in modern English than what you really lay out in the book about what they really believed in. They believed in pleasures, but in wholesome pleasures. What did that mean? What's the difference there? Yeah. Epicurus He bought a plot of land in ancient Athens, uh, built a garden with his friends and wrote his books and lived communally. And there were a lot of scandalous tales at the time of the kinky goings on in Epicurus's garden because he 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 said that the good is pleasure. Pleasure is what makes life worth living. And of course, you know, people think pleasure. He's talking about sex. He's talking about, you know, gluttony and the right. And so in the grand tradition, the literary philosophical tradition, Epicureanism came to mean a great relishing of the physical pleasures, the sensual pleasures, which were seen as somewhat sinful and as contrary to a proper interest in one's spirituality. But frankly, it's unfair to Epicurus. He didn't really mean that. He's clear, pleasure is good. And um, the only pleasures that aren't good are the ones that eventually lead to pain. He's not sort of obsessed with the sensual pleasures, but he's not afraid to say that sensual pleasures, eating and drinking and sex and this kind of thing, are good themselves. So I, I think that he's, he's no Puritan, and, and I think, he, but he gets a bit of a bad press, the word Epicureanism. Neither was he all about the Bacchanalia, though. He even one of the quotes from him that you cite was, unhappiness results when people become too invested in satisfying non-necessary desires, especially when they become insatiable. That's not an overindulgent worldview. Right. Very central to his philosophy of life is this distinction between uh, necessary and unnecessary desires. And I think that what we're talking about here is something absolutely fundamental to any philosophy which tackles the question of you know, the meaning of life or what one should do with one's life, because it's really about the question, what are the most important values? 
you perhaps know that I've taught a course occasionally, which sometimes gets mocked. It's a course called Tight Wadery, The Good Life on a Dollar a Day. <laughs> right? It's only a, an evening class that I've taught a few times with students. And we do funny things like the students get to cut each other's hair and we have a class banquet with full of Depression-era recipes and things like this. But there's a serious dimension to the course. We read Thoreau, we read Epicurus, we read the Stoics and this kind of thing. And what I emphasize in that course is that for all the stuff about, you know, yard sailing and coupon cutting and all this kind of thing, what it's really about is to try to help the students work out what really matters to them in life. Does making a lot of money really matter? I mean, for some people it might, but if it does, is that a false value? By a false value, I mean, is it something where you're eventually going to say, this isn't making my life seem meaningful? By the way, I, I say that rather than say, this isn't making me happy, although that is a good question too. But I know that you talked to Oliver Berkman about happiness quite recently. Just, and yeah, just That was very day. interesting. I, I really like his writing. He's great. Yeah, and he too was kind of critical of an overemphasis on just happiness because happiness is important. But uh, as he says, and a lot of people have said, you know, the way to live is not to aim at happiness. It's to do your thing. And if you do your thing and are successful in that, and your thing being a true value, one that really is self-expression of who you really are, happiness will perhaps come along. If you're fortunate, happiness will come along, like the dog's tail that follows behind. <laughs> what do the students, what do they say? What is it like to talk to a 20-year-old about these heavy things, and what do they arrive at? There isn't a, a single answer. There's a diversity of opinion. One issue that I have and this is not a criticism of students, it's something that I had to deal with in writing the book. I'm very much drawn towards the virtues or the merits of simple living. And yet, if I sort of say to my students, okay, this is what your life is going to look like. You're going to live in a tiny house in the countryside. You're going to be self-sufficient. You're going to grow a row of beans. You're going to have a few friends. And occasionally they'll come around for some bread and cheese. And that's it. There are a few of them will say, sounds great. But many of them will say, that sounds boring. I want to do stuff. I mean, what happened to me going to the Himalayas? What happened to me standing on the Great Wall of China? What happened to me making my first million and then my second million? What happened to me becoming a professional musician or something? You know, from the standpoint of a young, aspiring person excited with life, simplicity can seem dull. I don't have a good answer to that objection. It's not just the money, it's the experiences that they're hungry for. They want to see the world. They want to see what they're capable of achieving. You know, I had Jonathan Rauch on here who wrote a book called The Happiness Curve, which I strongly recommend. And he talks about how from our mid-20s down to our late 40s, our happiness declines. And his theory is in part that when we're 25, the world is out there and we're going to go conquer it. And then a few decades later, we're like, well, I did a lot of that. And for some reason, I don't feel validated in the way that I expected to. And so at a certain point you go, you know what really fills me with joy is hanging out with people I love and trust and having some bread, cheese, and maybe a little wine as well, and laughing and having a good time and feeling as if I am part of something, even if it's only a small group of friends. Well, one thought occurs to me about that is the problem that may arise in the kind of things talking about is this, the goals you set yourself are not 
goals that you've truly chosen and a true expression of you. Like I just mentioned, you know, you want to stand on the Great Wall of China, right? Great. Mm -hmm. But why do you want to stand on the Great Wall of China? Answer, so you can have your photograph taken and then you can show <laughs> everyone that you've stood on the Great Wall of China, right? You know, do you really care? Did you study the history of China? No. Did mm -hmm. you find anything out about the building mm -hmm. of the wall or what it was all that? No. It's just that that's the kind of thing that cultured people do. They go on the pilgrimage and they bring back the souvenir. Then everyone says, ah, that is a well-traveled person. And in a sense, that's what I mean by false values, where the values you've taken on aren't, this is the kind of thing one is supposed to do. And you're supposed to enjoy it. Right. If you forgot about that part, right? It's supposed to be enjoy. You're supposed to do it because the act of discovery brings you joy. You talk about conspicuous experiences. And I find this really interesting because not long ago, I read a book called The Sum of Small Things by Elizabeth Curd Halkett, which is sort of a modern interpretation of Thorstein Veblen's work. By the way, if I had it to do over again, my son would be named Thorstein. For those listening, he was an economist or psychologist, I can't remember, but he came up with the term conspicuous consumption, which is thrown around so widely today. And you've coined this conspicuous experiences because we are not looking for experiences for the value of the experiences themselves, but on the social credibility that it gives us by taking our picture curated in the right way. That's right. I hate to say it, but some of it does come down to money and the temptation to boast about wealth and that kind of thing. In the past, you know, you would show off your wealth by building the palace at Versailles or the Taj Mahal, you know, whatever. That's how you, you show off how wealthy you are. And also the, the livery of your footman and, you, you know, the number of horses pulling a coach. Mm. Now, that's kind of a bit, little bit in bad taste. You know, but what you do now <laughs> is you, I swear, I've been to dinner parties where some rich people have been present and they've moved from boasting about their skiing holiday in the Alps to their new Tesla to their, you know, 40-foot yacht and this kind of thing. And very often the conversation is actually about traveling. It's about going to all parts of the world and going to these famous places and hobnobbing with this and that. And I think underneath it all is actually boasting about money a lot of the time. Yes. Yes. And that book, Some of Small Things, have you read that by any chance? I haven't. It's, I've just made a note of it. It's, a, it's worth your time, I think. Part of this is generational, I think. I don't say this pejoratively, but millennials tend to value experiences and sort of curate their social identities in that way. I think that Reagan era folks like me, Gen X type people were all about accomplishment and about success and titles. In this book, she talks about though, because we're working longer hours than ever, she refers to non-conspicuous consumption, where the way we separate ourselves from everyone else with our wealth is through nannies and personal trainers and yard services and people to whom we we outsource certain tasks so that we can spend more time at the office so that we can afford the big houses that we've bought and the clubs that we belong to and things like that. That's just something that's different than it was 120 years ago. I mean, I think it'd be great to have a livery and footman uh, for a weekend anyway, but practically speaking, I'd much rather have a nanny. Yeah. It's interesting the way in which in our culture, the, the progression has gone. There was a time when, you know, this, the simple way that you you sort of expressed your wealth was in things, including mm. the liveried footmen. And then, you know, we moved. I think what happened was to some extent in the consumer society, a very large number of people were able to get the things. I mean, there isn't much difference between me and Bill Gates in the kind of mobile phone that we use. I right, suppose, right. right? No. And so if you want to distinguish yourself, you distinguish yourself in other ways. And experiences is one of those things. At the same time, 
I mean, the millennials aren't something. I think it's a shift in the right direction to emphasize experience over things. Things can really only take you so far. I know that when you interviewed uh, Carol Graham, she talked about basically past 75,000 a year and the happiness curve flattens out, right? And, and I think it makes sense because what's she saying there, what's going on there is people want to get out of poverty and they want the basic comforts and they want the basic security. And once they've got those, most things are then in place. And then it's kind of gravy. It's icing on the cake after that. So along those lines, let's play a quick game of dueling philosophers. And Aristotle said something not terribly far from that. He said, a certain amount of money is necessary to act virtuously. Plato, on the other hand, said, uh, more than any other, the lust for money tends toward insatiability. Which of these philosophers was right, Emrys? It's a one-word answer. No essays here. I want to say they both were. Oh, <laughs> they, man. They both were because- you tricked me. Plato clearly has a point that love of money can become insatiable. You mentioned earlier that tendency, you know, what's going on when people want to make their third million or their fourth million. And you're probably familiar with that quote when I can't remember who said it, but someone said, you know, you're so rich. Why do you insist on getting this huge bonus? And he says, that's the way we keep score. Yeah, for sure. And clearly that's the insatiable. And Aristotle warns against it. But Aristotle, although always, compared to Plato, has that big dose of common sense. You know, the, the painting by Raphael of Plato pointing up to the sky and Aristotle down to the ground. Aristotle's common sense basically says, oh, well, we all want to be happy and there's certain prerequisites need to be in place. You need some good luck. You need a long life. You need your health and you need a modicum of wealth. You don't need to be fabulously rich, but you do need to be um, you know, out of poverty. You do need to be not constantly fretting over money. Interestingly, even Plato says at the beginning of the Republic, he, he had Socrates talking to a very rich guy, and the rich guy says, you know, there are, there are advantages of being rich. You're not tempted to go into crime, for instance. You're not tempted to take bribes or, or be corrupt or anything like that. I mean, imagine if we had rich people in our government, they would, you know, they're... Um, I was going to if, say, if, if we had rich people in our government, if we had rich people, then there'd be no corruption, right? Right. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> uh, we'll leave that road unexplored for today. But it's interesting that, that the software we have between our ears really hasn't changed that much since the times of the ancients. And when I was 23, I had my first heaping dose of financial hardship, and I realized I was going to have to live a relatively austere life. So I went to the library and I checked out books about the Stoics. Now, since I was 23, I did not read them. So can you tell me what the Stoics could have taught me about living frugally? The Stoics, when we're thinking here, you know, some of the classic Stoics would be Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and Seneca. I think that they would be saying, because quite a few of the things that we've been saying already, which is that the most important ingredients of a worthwhile life and a happy life don't need to cost a lot of money. They are pretty close to hand. You basically need to have friends, perhaps, and you need to, a slight difference in emphasis between the Stoics and Epicurus. Scholars very much distinguish between Stoics and Epicureans. I don't. I think there's a lot of overlap. Here's one of the differences. The Stoics put a big emphasis on morality, and they would say, and Plato would agree, and Socrates would agree, and Aristotle would agree, and to some extent Epicurus would agree as well, that the first condition of happiness is to be a good person. That might sound very twee. It might sound very kind of bland almost, but I actually think it's true. I actually think that good-hearted people on the whole are happier than mean-spirited people. I think this is true. 
However, the Stoics, and this is where they did differ from Epicurus, Epicurus thought it was fine to just retire to your garden, hang out with your friends, wine and cheese. Um, the Stoics thought that part of being a good person and living a worthwhile life was to be engaged, to, to be engaged in your society, to actually recognize that all of us have a certain amount of civic duty that we ought to perform. That largely consists of doing your job, whatever your job is, a teacher or a driver or a um, disc jockey or whatever it is. You know, you play your part in your society. And I think that to go back to your original question, what do the Stoics teach us? It always keeps coming back to the question, what values are the most important ones? What are the key to the happy, worthwhile life? And for the Stoics, it's simple things, appreciation of nature, not setting yourself unreasonable or foolish expectations or ambitions, which is probably one of the things that leads most people astray. There's a lot of overlap here between Stoicism and Buddhism. Buddhism sort of says the key to the source of unhappiness is unfulfilled desire. And the Stoics will pretty much say the same thing. They'll say, hold your desires in check instead of having foolish desires, which when you fail to achieve them, make you unhappy. So we see all different kinds of philosophies chiming in on frugality. You've got the transcendentalists talking about nature. You've got ascetics talking about self-denial. You've got Christians taking self-denial a whole step further in engaging in things like uh, hair shirts and self-flagellation. Where's the line between anti-materialism and denying God's gifts? That's a pretty good question. One of my favorite philosophers is David Hume, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher. I think that his philosophy of life was... uh, pretty enlightened. And he disparages what he calls the monkish virtues, which is a wonderful phrase, the monkish virtues. Mm. These are the virtues, you know, things like, uh, yeah, self-denial, abstinence, uh, chastity, humility, silence, uh, all this kind of thing. It's a, you know, Hume's view is, hey, you know, life is there to be lived and enjoyed. So enjoy it, right? But at the same time, you know, there's usually some truth in almost every philosophy. So, if we kind of dig deep and say, okay, well, in Puritanism, I'm not very drawn to Puritanism, but is there something in Puritanism and the monkish virtues that we could sort of say, well, they had a point? And I think, yes, I mean, they are in the business of deepening your spirituality, of deepening your willingness to self-reflect, be kind of content with your own company and to also deepen your self-awareness. I think that Perhaps the value in Puritanism, the truth in Puritanism, is a sort of imperative to not live superficially. When viewed through a generous lens, yes. <laughs> you could also make the argument that it's manipulation so that you are submissive to the dogma they prescribe. Absolutely. I'm not a champion of Puritanism. I, I, was, <laughs> I was sort of responding to your question. Emrys Westacott, champion <laughs> of Puritanism. Let's get back to Epicurus and the kinky pleasures. There you go. There you go. Let's talk about what this would look like on a societal level. What happens if we all just sell everything and live in a tent tomorrow? Well, it would be quite similar to if there was a pandemic and everyone's not <laughs> buying anything. That's uh, not going to happen. Come on. <laughs> I mean, the CDC is going to keep that from happening. Yeah. <laughs> in the book, in one chapter later on, I say, well, what would happen if there's an, an outbreak of frugality? The problem is... On the one hand, philosophically, I think this was rather a step in the right direction because, you know, I think we are excessively materialistic and grasping as a society. On the other hand, we have a modern complex economy in which all these, you know, cogs and wheels interlock and we don't want 40 million unemployed 
when you know the schools have to close down and the colleges have to close down and the transport systems have to close down and, and there's not enough money for anything. It's a problem. I suppose my answer then is this. I think that for everyone to suddenly embrace radical frugality would basically immediately drive our entire economy and culture into a ditch. However, the values in question that that move is trying to embrace and support are not bad values. And so we definitely could be steering our society and our economy in a certain direction. And the direction I'd like to see us go in is a direction where people can live very pleasant lives on relatively little. And the way that that can be achieved within a period of time is through enlightened public policies so that, for instance, we have national health care, which is free. We have subsidized cheap public transport. We have subsidized public housing. Some things we have already, like free education, cheaper colleges, libraries and parks and museums and national parks and lots and lots of things like that, so that the basics of life are there. It would greatly decrease people's anxieties and it would greatly increase people's freedoms because people could, for instance, feel much more free to change jobs, pursue alternative careers. Mm. When I left the corporate world and became self-employed, I realized how expensive insurance is for the person consuming it without the aid of a corporate benefactor. And so last year I paid $25,000 in post-tax premia for my family to have health insurance. And that was through the exchange. And I'd never really thought about that before because it was always just part of my job. People say, well, you can't have national health care because you'd pay higher taxes. It's like, if I'm paying 25 grand in premium, I don't care if I'm paying it to Blue Cross or if I'm paying it to the government, as long as the healthcare is of a sufficient quality that exactly. it's reliable. So, I mean, that's something I've really come around on. And it's kind of like you were talking about the transcendentalists, you know, everybody should have access to nature. It's like, well, wouldn't we be better off if people didn't have the existential fears that hang over their heads every day and we all could live the good life. And that doesn't mean everybody gets, you know, a Porsche. It just means people don't have to be afraid of what happens if my kid gets a cold or God forbid the coronavirus. That was my two second philosophical thing. But you're talking about things that threaten the way some people see America, you know? And I remember Jimmy Carter talking about frugality and then getting his ass kicked by Ronald Reagan with his city on a hill vision, that this attitude just isn't something that a lot of Americans don't want to embrace, that frugality is weakness even. Okay, but I'll put it to you. Reagan comes around in 1980, the same time as Margaret Thatcher in the UK, mm -hmm. and they represented what we call neoliberalism, which is a, very much a heavily individualistic philosophy which is pretty much taking us away from providing public amenities using taxation and towards letting people sink or swim on their own. That philosophy of neoliberalism has clearly been in the forefront of things for a long time, for the last 40 years. It's been very successful in terms of getting itself on the agenda. And perpetuating However, itself, yes. I do think the pandemic spells the end of the neoliberal era. I think that... Uh, when people say they want to get back to normal, my response is to say, no, we, won't, we don't want to get back to normal. We want to use this as the opportunity to really rethink the kind of culture and the kind of society we want. And I really think there's a very good chance that this is going to happen in the medium term. I think that 
we will sort of say, no, we're all in this together. We need public policies that improve our public amenities. We've been excessively individualistic. Yeah, individuals can't solve a pandemic. <laughs> they can certainly perpetuate it. They can't solve it. I think also that the, there's something healthy about wanting to to share. I've only been to Florida once in my life, and I stayed in a gated community. It's the only time when I've been in one of these communities. You had to type in a passcode in order to get access to the beach. And when you got access to the beach, you were the only person on the beach, or you know, hardly anyone else there. And so you kind of have it to yourself, as it were. And some people put a premium on that. Some people like that. But I don't. And I actually think that we don't want a world where people want the whole beach to themselves. I think it's good to actually say, go to a beach and see everyone enjoying themselves and the kids running around and, and say, hey, we're a community. I think that's a much healthier culture. That's a big deal in a lot of communities like Malibu and you know who owns the beach and where does it become a public good? It's a fascinating question. Well, let's say we don't want to all go move into our tents, but what happens to our society if we all kind of knock back our consumerism by 25%? There is that danger of a serious economic recession. We'll do it slowly so Paul Krugman doesn't have a heart attack. <laughs> I think it's healthy. For one thing, it's moving us away from crass materialism. For another thing, it's moving us away from just perhaps from individualism towards a more community-oriented approach. For another thing, it's probably better for the environment because it means a reduction in things like you know fossil fuel consumption and uh, energy expenditure and that sort of thing. And I think actually, again, the Stoic Buddhist point, if it reorients people's lives towards simpler, better pleasures and forms of happiness, it makes for a happier world too. So in a perfect world, are we all sitting around the Lyceum sipping tea and discussing the meaning of life? No. And here's why. The ancients that we talk about, like Plato and Aristotle, when they ask the question, what is the good life for a human being? They almost always think there is such a thing as the good life for a human being. And needless to say, they all say it's the life of the philosopher, you know, right? Um, but we're pluralistic now. I mean, now we're much more willing to say, well, there isn't a good life for the human being. There's many different kinds of good life. You don't want everyone to be the same. In fact, to take a phrase from John Stuart Mill, the 19th century uh, philosopher, we want to encourage people with experiments in living, experiments in lifestyle. If we encourage people to experiment with lifestyles, we may discover new forms of happiness, new routes to happiness, which again is another good argument, I'd say, for ensuring that people can live more anxiety-free lives through enlightened public policies. So the pluralism of today contrasts somewhat with the rather narrower view of the good life that you find with the ancient philosophers. Hmm. Okay. As a proponent of frugality, please confess to me, what is your one indulgent bad habit? You mean something I'm... Where do you fail in frugality, Dr. Westacott? <laughs> okay. Uh, the thing is that my answer is going to, it's going to be like, what is your biggest failing? Oh, I work too hard. It's, going to be, <laughs> it's like, your perfectionism. Sure it is. In our local grocery supermarket, right? There's a pathetic little section with British foodstuffs like Coleman's mustard and Heinz baked beans and HP sauce and that kind of thing. They're ridiculously priced, you know, and... I admit that when I go shopping, I do stock up on things like Branston pickle and Coleman's mustard at ridiculous prices. 
I can't think of Heinz beans without thinking of that Keith Moon picture where he's covered in, I think he's in a tub covered in Heinz beans. That has nothing to do with philosophy except for I hope I die before I get old. Well, I'll disagree with you. I think part of frugality and living the good life is spending on what brings you the most joy. And even if you could get an inferior mustard for far cheaper than one that you enjoy, it's about investing and savoring. So I hereby absolve you of your <laughs> sins of commission against frugality, Amrus. Where can our listeners find out more about your work and your book? If you Google my name, you'll find my website, and I've got uh, links there to my books and to my writings. I write a monthly column, which is published on Three Quarks Daily, a well-known uh, blog filter site. We'll have the link to Emrys' website in the show notes. It's also E-M-R-Y-S Westacott, W-E-S-T-A-C-O-T-T. Did I spell that right? Yeah. All right. Emrys, I enjoyed speaking with you very much. Thank you for making time to be a part of the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that conversation with Emrys, and I'm so appreciative to him and all the guests that have shared their knowledge with me and with you these last few weeks, for some reason, I just feel like I've found some really interesting people recently and good for me, but mostly thank you to them. Hope you've enjoyed them. I'd like to think that if I went back to college, if I took Emrys's course at Alfred University, that if I took his class, I would really want to do the reading. I remember my freshman year of college and actually all through college, but specifically being in the course called Search, Man's Search for Meaning, the full name was. And I'd show up for class and the reading was everything from the Gilgamesh epic to probably up to Thoreau. And I would not have done the reading, but I would certainly participate in class. I didn't let my lack of information keep me from contributing my opinion for the rest of the class to enjoy and use to their edification. That's how generous I was as a classmate in college. I'd like to think that if I went back to class as a 51-year-old, I'd do the reading and have some very interesting points of view to share that were actually based on some real knowledge as opposed to my 18-year-old wisdom. So here are a few takeaways for me. Number one, what frugality means and the wisdom of frugality means to me is you got to live within your means. That's the golden rule. And everybody's means are different and, and that's okay. Inequality is not entirely bad. There's a lot of inequality that's a problem, but it's not all entirely bad. And it's important to know where you sit on that spectrum. What you have relative to your neighbor isn't the question. The question is, what do you have? How do you define a good life? And how do you use money to help you live that good life within those means? Frugality will help you avoid debt, which is prison and pain, as we all know. So uh, that's the first part, live within your means. The second way in which frugality equals wisdom to me is that you consume little enough to be able to share what you have with others. In other words, frugality allows you to be generous, more generous than if you spent all the way up to your limits, right? To, to the limits of your capacity, which you could say, hey, I'm living within my means, sure, but your means are not providing for anybody other than yourself. And you're also, when you spend right up to the limits of your means, have no room for error. So that's a big problem there. Lastly, and most importantly, frugality means you have sufficient control over your appetites that you live life on your terms. I think this is probably the most important thing. And these are all related, of course. But if you have awareness and control over your spending, that means that you are an autonomous financial entity and that you have the power to decide to live a life consistent with your values. 
You are your own person. You don't have to bend over backwards or take shortcuts or meet obligations of your desires. Or as Lou Mannheim would say, do things you don't want to do to get that money. And I think that's the most important part of it. So frugality, is it a wild, crazy party? Is it a disco party that all of us get to go and, you know, champagne and all sorts of sexy ladies and gorgeous men? No, that's not what it is. But it is a key to a good life. Remember what really matters most, sitting around, eating bread, cheese, and wine with your friends and having control over your life. That's what Frugality is all about. Hope you have a great week. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. Thank you, Mike Carano. Make me sound smart.